Dentistry Stories. The views expressed by any individual in this interview are entirely their own and are not necessarily shared by Denver Street Stories. Denver Street Stories is an active supporter in the LGBTQ community. We stand with the Black Lives Matter movement, and as intersectional feminists, we support equity and equality for all peoples. Denver Street Stories supports sovereignty and land back to indigenous communities. We strive to actively deconstruct oppressive colonialist structures. Denver Street Stories, these are our stories. Okay, hi everybody. Um, welcome back to Denver Street Stories. Today we're meeting with Lisa again. Um, and we are really grateful that she took the time to meet with us today. And I think we're mainly going to be focusing on talking a little bit about um, some of Mike Johnston's current policies and things he's been doing regarding homelessness and maybe um, some things that he had mentioned before he became the mayor and kind of how that's going now, um, as well as a few other things related to the housing crisis in Denver. Yes, so to take us back a little bit, um, I ran for office mayor came in a very close third, so missed the runoff by a little over 3,000 votes. Um, and, you know, after I ran my race, I was like, I'm done, I'm out, think about vacation. But uh, in actuality, I had a lot of community momentum that said, we need your voice still. Um, and uh, so basically, through a community process, we created a scorecard for the runoff finalists, and Mike Johnston uh, obviously was one of those. We asked them over, oh, let's see, we had about uh, 79 questions, I think, we asked on lots of domains, including around housing issues. And he agreed to 74 out of the 79 Oh, wow. uh, commitments and we ended up endorsing him and as a result we then issued a scorecard four months after he had taken office and that scorecard resulted in a grade of D like D right above F <laughs> and part of that was um, we felt that he didn't fulfill his promises that he had made. Now, granted, he had only been in office for four months. You can't do everything. But there were some very specific things that we wanted to make sure we saw happen. And not only did he not do them, he sometimes did the opposite. So, for example, one low-hanging fruit was meeting with the unions that were part of our coalition and uh, I think he met with one group, but didn't meet with the other groups that he promised he would meet with. That, that didn't take excessive amount of time or coordinating. But one of the bigger issues were around the um, homeless crisis that we have going on in this city. And so, you know, we, we gave him an F for in the portion around culture change because the same person who was in charge of the sweeps, his name is Evan Dreyer, was Michael Hancock, our former mayor, chief of staff. He is now, um, I'm sorry, deputy chief of staff. He is now Mike Johnston's deputy chief of staff. So he remained still. He remained, through, right. Yeah. So that was a big breach of... Um, 
faith for us that why would you keep the same person who was in charge of a very inhumane uh, approach to homelessness by sweeping people, by you know, not opening up warming centers, you know, waiting for it to get, you know, I think it was even, I think it was like 20 degrees before yeah. they opened up yeah. warming centers for, for folks. Uh, why would you put this guy back in charge as your deputy chief of staff? And was, was that something that you were all were expecting or were you surprised that he, he kept it on? Did you know what he was going to do in advance or no? Totally blindsided because we had an in-depth conversation about the importance of changing the past very brutal and cruel administration when it came to unhoused folks. Uh, he, but he didn't just keep Evan Dreyer, he also kept the entire heads of public safety. So oh. the same people who were also in charge of the sweeps by literally getting police officers and sheriff deputies, et cetera, in clearing out um, encampments, he kept all of them. And by the way, they were all men. And the fact that he didn't interview anybody else, yeah. he didn't consider anyone but the same guys who had been part of the Hancock administration. So it felt like an absolute betrayal. I mean, especially because from the unhoused community themselves, like they know, like there's been plenty of public forums and everything where people have talked about the administration not working for them. It's, right. It was just really, you know, they, they wanted different people. They wanted new people. And it sounds like he either didn't know what, what unhoused people were saying or maybe chose not to listen to them. I, you know, I think it's both. I think that, you know, groups like yours and House Keys Action Network Denver and have been very vocal about what has been wrong with the Denver's housing policy, which essentially has been fund the shelters to warehouse people and in, you know, sometimes filthy or inhumane or punitive conditions with all of the rules and all of that, um, rather than investing in permanent uh, housing options, affordable and, you know, uh, low income and even no income options. So we actually thought there would be a change. And so the fact that basically it's a continuation of a lot of that policy. Now there's a twist though, because, you know, Johnston is out there, you know, saying a lot of things that we as progressives would say, like, Everybody deserves a home. Um, unhoused folks, if you offered them a place to stay, they would take it. Like all of those things, those sound really great. And to his credit, he has made uh, a huge effort compared to the Hancock administration mm -hmm. that made no effort, right? Their strategy was sweeps and shelters. His are um, micro, what he calls micro communities. Uh, and also, he goes to the camps and he talks to the people before a sweep happens. But um, we also have heard him say that once he gets these tiny villages set up, if people choose not to go to them, he will have them arrested. 
So it's insidious, right? Yeah. Because he's doing it with our language, our progressive language, with our values, but is saying he will lock people up once he gets these tiny shed places built. Um, and so part of it is too, is millions upon millions upon millions of dollars are going into these temporary um, structures that he's calling housing, which we know is not housing because they're basically non-congregate shelters, yeah. right? Uh, instead of investing, I mean, wouldn't you want a, a voucher for a year to be in an actual place with an actual toilet and shelter with an actual lock and key uh, that isn't concentrating poverty with everybody together, that actually would um, cost less than all of the money that's being put into these, um, his micro communities. So, you know, it's been a bit boggling because he's doing it in a very nice way. Mm -hmm. I think he's very, he's much more sincere than Hancock was. But if the end result is the same, which is in, a, in some ways institutionalization, whether it be through the sheltering system or the um, courts and jailing system, you end up in the same place, that's a problem. Yeah, and I think even for people in these um, tiny communities, mm -hmm. uh, it's, I think it's really difficult to get transitional housing right. And I know he's kind of mentioned that he wants it to be a transitional thing, but that would be managed by each individual little community, I believe. Um, and that's, I think that's something that is really, really difficult to achieve without a lot of support and a lot of work, you know, helping people to get jobs, whatever, whatever mm -hmm. it is, you know, there's so many different needs that every single individual is going to have. It's going to be something different for everybody, you know, mm -hmm. but to have those, uh, to have that support available for people to actually guide them and help them into, uh, more permanent and stable housing, like long-term housing, mm -hmm. um, being able to keep that and hold that steady, like that takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. And I just wonder if he is prepared for that or knows like how, how much work that's going to be to keep it a continual thing. Like even after, if you put in all this money building it, you know, it needs to be a continual thing where it's like, you know, if you've gotten a thousand people off the streets and into these tiny, um, tiny homes or tiny shelter spaces, like then they need to be moved on to, to more mm -hmm. permanent housing mm -hmm. as soon as possible, you know, and get more people into these time. And it needs mm -hmm. to be a really continual process where it's not just like, you know, once you've gotten, you know, a thousand people in like shelter of some kind that that's, you know, that's, that's not enough, I think. Yeah. You really hit on some critical problematic infrastructure dynamics, which is first of all, um, using the words of former councilwoman Candy Sedabaca, that uh, these efforts are focusing on the aesthetics of poverty, meaning the visible poverty. The, the you know, sweeps have been shown through research to be activated based on complaints. So complaints, not who needs shelter the most, not who's most vulnerable, but on complaints by housed neighbors. So that's often how they're activated. And Johnston's plan is no different. 
the, his first uh, sweep was outside of the governor's mansion. So it wasn't necessarily on who was most vulnerable. It's like, you can imagine the governor calling him up and is like, uh, get these people, you know, whatever you need to do, right? Um, and so that was actually the first sweep that Johnston did was outside of the governor's mansion. Wow. So that's one thing is, is ridding people uh, uh, visible homelessness is one problem so that people actually will feel better, feel safer. Uh, and I'm talking about house people so that yeah. they feel safer. That's one problem. The other problem is, uh, as you were saying, is you know transitional housing takes our eye off the ball of permanent housing. It takes a lot of resources. I mean, I had been a service provider for many years, but 20 years. Um, first worth working with victims of domestic violence for 12 years and ran a legal clinic and protection order clinic, et cetera. And then working with incarcerated folks um, who also had high rates of trauma in and out of the system. Did that for eight years. I learned in my 20 years that there's really isn't such thing as transitional housing. Right. You either go from um, a, a state of housing, if you're in those situations, to be lucky enough to have a home, uh, housing to the street, um, or you're bounced around, and it makes it harder to get to that permanent goalpost, permanent housing goalpost. So when we're putting more money into transitional, meaning temporary, uh, solutions, it's taking money and resources from permanent solutions. So we're building now this massive structure of transition. Mm -hmm. Then a third problem that you identified is we have a labor shortage, right? I know you were mentioning that earlier. Yes. Was, yeah, it's yeah. absolutely true. I mean, I even see you just working at a food pantry, but at these, I think what you're mentioning is like a lot of these places need 24 hour support and someone available there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. these are hard, hard jobs. You're, you're working with people in crisis. You have them all together in a very concentrated way. So, and, and, uh, and so trauma can trigger trauma. I lived in the projects as a child. And so this idea that just because you're poor, you should all live and huddle together and you'll have some kind of utopia of helping one another, you know, whether it, it's in that situation of housing, whether it's, and I ran a women's shelter as part of my duties, working with domestic violence victims, the assumption that, oh, just because you're all women who came from an abusive background, let's all put you together and hope that you all get along. That does not work very well. So this idea that we've got to keep these tabs on these folks all together is an outdated idea. What works better and what research has shown is having people disperse throughout the city in regular homes aren't yeah. normalized just like everybody else so that you can be exposed to different environments, different people, different ideas, different income levels. Um, and you know the opposite of that is, is happening. So mm -hmm. if you don't have enough people to staff these places 24 seven, 
it's going to be inevitable that certain things happen. People may get hurt just by, you know, and this is life. And then there's going to be a big controversy about how dangerous these people are, right? It's going to feed that narrative of danger. And I think you were mentioning something that I feel like is also kind of important to the conversation before when we were speaking is where these are being placed and which communities these are being placed. You know, they're not being put in Cherry Creek, Mm -hmm. but they're being put in, I believe you said Park Hill. Is that right? Yeah. So historically redline neighborhoods in Denver, they're also uh, referred to as the inverted L. So the inverted L starts at um, Southwest Denver, runs up the corridor of um, up to Northwest Denver and then runs east uh, through Swansea, Illyria, eventually Montbello. And these have been historically redlined. I mean, Montbello actually was a redlined community. So that's the only place that black folks could go and get a, get a home and get a loan for a home. And so that's where these tiny homes now are getting... Um, looked at is in the inverted L and the majority of them uh, are in hotels in North Park Hill. Now people will say, well, that's because these were the hotels that, that were feeder um, hotels into the airport. So why not put it there? It's industrial areas. um, And the question instead is why were these industrial areas in the first place? (laughs) Because that's where the black and brown folks lived. So um, Mike Johnston has put three, um, basically converted these these hotels into shelters into North Park Hill, a historically black and redlined neighborhood. And the folks in Cherry Creek and South Denver and the wealthier areas have organized very effectively, very vocally, so that these places don't come into their neighborhoods. And that's actually how we got the highway through I-70 because it was intended years ago, over 50 years ago to actually run parallel to 6th Avenue. But we can't have that because that's where a lot of wealthy, rich, Cherry Creek, white, influential, politically connected people. So they were able to effectively lobby to get the highway moved into and split black and brown neighborhoods through Elyria, Swansea, Park Hill and out into Montbello. So in some ways it's happening again. History Mm -hmm. is repeating Mm -hmm. itself by where do we put the people and the problems we don't want to deal with in these historically black and brown communities. And I think it's becoming a little more clear even as you talk why uh, Mike Johnson has scored so low in these very specific areas. It sounds like even an F in, what was it that you said specifically? In culture change, because mm-hmm. he kept the same people from the Hancock administration yeah. in these very key positions. So, yeah. And I think that's maybe if we can kind of jump back to something we are talking about just a minute ago as well with how that's not what has people have said that they need and what they want, right. you know. And I think... Um, like when it comes down to it, people usually know what's best for themselves mm-hmm. um, and politicians don't always know what's best for people. And I think that's something that, like you mentioned, House Keys Action Network of Denver, they have done a lot of work in 
um, amplifying people's voices and doing all these really in-depth surveys, just speaking to community one-on-one, unhoused community one-on-one um, -on -one and seeing what it really is that people want and what it is that people need. Right. And I think that that is something that has been um, really ignored uh, by the mayor in numerous ways, obviously keeping this administration, um, but in other ways too, like you were saying, transitional housing really doesn't work um, mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's what he's trying to do. And I think what something that House Keys Action Network has really, um, has really kind of said a lot and has amplified a lot is that people, they want housing, they want real housing. Um, and a lot of people, they feel that like if they could get that housing, they would be able to keep it, you know, and they, because that would, that obviously that's a huge, um, that's a huge motivational thing is even just getting that housing, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think there have been a lot of different studies that have even shown when people get housing and support, obviously like continuous support, that they're able to keep most people, the majority of people are able to keep that housing long-term and it really does work better than this, you know, so-called transitional housing. So. Yes. You know, the way this administration has been defining housed and housing uh, has been problematic because they've been defining it as temporary and shelters. And um, I know of being unhoused as a teenager, escaping violence in my own home. You know, when you have a sense of permanence, like this is my place, instead of thinking, I, where am I going to sleep tomorrow? And maybe I'm, you know, I'm here tonight, but I don't know where I'm going to be. You can't plan your life. It's hard to interview for jobs, right? Because, you know, you also got to put down your address and, you know, you've got to have a working phone number. So when you, there's something psychological to the aspect of, you know, we're going to put you in this place temporarily, but don't get too comfortable, right? And don't really lay out your stuff. Oh, and you can only bring so much stuff because, you know, you're, we're going to be moving you again. And we don't know when exactly. We're not going to tell you that. Uh, that impacts people. That adds to people's trauma. And, you know, these, rather than just being upfront and to say, you know what, we're going to do so social housing in Denver. And we're going to start with these hotels that we're going to convert into social housing spaces. And when these people move into them, you know, we're, you know, we're going to look at it like that's going to be their home and we're going to build toward that goal. But that's not what the city is saying. So this sense of uncertainty is really hard for people who are trying to get their life back together and not have to feel like they have to keep restarting and restarting and restarting, and which is frustrating and trauma triggering. That's, yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think that's something we even just talk about a lot within our own little organization of Denver Street Stories is how like, it's, I feel like so often highlighted in any media that even discusses like unhoused people um, in any capacity, it kind of wants to show like, the success stories, like, oh, this person, you know, they used to be a drug addict, but they pulled themselves mm -hmm. up by their bootstraps, and they got sober, and they got housing, and now look how well they're doing, you know, something like that, um, mm -hmm. or something to that effect, you know, when in reality, I think people who have not experienced this in any way, who have not had even seen it firsthand very much, um, that they don't know how, like, it, it almost sounds very, like, like obvious to say it out loud, but like they don't know how serious this is and how extreme it is. 
and why some people need certain things to cope and why it is just so even psychologically difficult to get out of that situation and physically you know when you're taking your stuff around all day and you maybe need a shower you haven't showered in a couple weeks Mm -hmm. but the nearest uh, place that's currently offering showers is blocks away is even not it's not even available to you know whatever it is it's like I know from talking to some people that you know sometimes they have like these all this stuff they're carrying around right it's like it takes you all day to do one thing like one task is what you can do you know Mm -hmm. even if that task is finding a bathroom right or something and it's just so it's like how do you think about getting a job and getting housed and when you're spending all day looking for a bathroom because there are no public restrooms in Denver Mm -hmm. it's it's almost absurd to even think of like getting to those steps that are just so far away you couldn't even imagine it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When I used to run the city's reentry program, I made sure that our facility was open, um, you know, for folks to just hang out, right? To just catch their breath, to warm up, to, you know, use our facilities. You know, it's, again, that psychological aspect of feeling like there's some place you not just can land, but you're also wanted, mm-hmm. right? The stress of wondering if you're going to be pushed out, rushed out, yeah. um, have the police called on you. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that you said also about essentially pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, it is so, such an old school, old-fashioned way of thinking that, uh, and you hear Mike Kaufman, Mayor Mike Kaufman say this in Aurora, and this other group that is, you know, so problematic called Safe and Clean Denver. Their whole thing is work and addiction treatment. Well, first of all, as I said, we're in a labor shortage. Work is not difficult for people to find. That's not the issue. When I was working in reentry, people could find work. That wasn't it for them. Uh, A lot of people are not suffering for addiction. So to keep putting those labels, like people are lazy and they're just addicted is so tiring. The majority of people who are unhoused and especially the growing population are working, Mm -hmm. uh, do not have an addiction. And as far as mental health issues, I mean, don't we all have them? I mean, honestly, like I am a big believer in um, people should have access to and free therapy. Right? There's something in this world that has caused us trauma and to be able to have a resource to be able to talk about it uh, and deal with it and stop making it so stigmatized as if unhoused people are different than the rest of us uh, with, you know, uh, mental illness issues. Like we all have some kind of stressors. I mean, anxiety is the number one kind of mental health issue that people face. And there's a lot to be anxious about in this world right now. Uh So when a lot of people are just a couple paychecks away from being unhoused Mm -hmm. even, and sometimes maybe don't realize it, but like, I feel like it kind of goes back to a lot of what we've been talking about is how a lot of housed people, don't even view the un, their unhoused neighbors as neighbors, you know, right. they view them as some like other, even subhuman, just, just group of people that just, just like, you know, just get them out of here, whatever. I don't want to see that, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. 
even though they're they're just people, they're just their neighbors, they're just our neighbor, you know, and it makes no sense to me, but right. yeah, it's, it's difficult to see. That. Yeah, these um, community meetings that Johnston has been holding uh, are incredibly vitriolic and, you know, people who otherwise say that they're good people are really um, uh, insulting to unhoused folks. I mean, they'll say things like, you know, they're going to prey on our children and, and not even thinking that you're opposing a family shelter where there are going to be children. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? So this fear, and it's contagious as well. But I also, you know, bring it back to the leadership of this city is that, you know, if you are not upfront with people, if you are using metrics that are problematic and changing, so one of his metrics was 14 days housed counts as success, housed. Uh, first of all, why 14 days? Uh, and two, what happens on your 15th day if you are kicked out or it doesn't work for you anymore, the city would still count you as a success. And then we find out that they weren't counting people at 14 days. They were counting people as soon as they swept them and put them into a shelter or, you know, which, which also wasn't housing, but they would call it housing. So I think what can start off as good intentions by the way you explain something or the way you mislead people and, um, it, you know, it, 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 everything else becomes suspect. So, you know, you've got to be upfront with people. Mm -hmm. Why is it so hard? Yeah, I think that's kind of a general, it kind of brings us full circle a little bit, but I think it's hard to feel almost lied to. Like mm -hmm. if, if we had known from the beginning, just again, upfront and honestly, what, what his plans were, um, I think it wouldn't have been such a surprise. You know, people were maybe expecting something to change to be to be better, and it it, it hasn't been. You know, really for the most part, at least, mm -hmm. um, which is really sad to hear. But anyways, maybe this is a good place to wrap up. I think mm -hmm. um, we've kind of we've kind of covered a lot of um, the things that are important to talk about. But I was wondering, is there anything else you you want to add that you feel is important before we we do wrap up? Yeah, I would just say, you know, right now there's a lot of things going on in our community, in our city, in our world. And I think that people can feel like it's hopeless and why continue to try? Politicians don't listen to us anyway. But I actually feel the opposite. I feel like there's a lot... Um, and especially young people, so I appreciate y'all interviewing me, who are paying attention and who are making very, um, they are going into the nuances of these issues because what politicians want you to do is to look away and to not pay attention and not talk about these issues, to become discouraged and instead, I actually see in some ways this resurgence of refusal to be, you know, gaslit, to look for answers and to give their own analysis after doing research. Um, and I think, you know, I, I am appreciative of social media in this way because if we just listen to what is being put on our local news, it's not 
even close to the nuance and the full and in-depth stories. I mean, to see people in other cities organizing, other progressives organizing gives me hope. So I don't have to just look at our city and say like, ugh, you know, it feels hopeless. So I would just say continue to pay attention, to speak out, to organize. It's three and a half years to our next mayoral election and our next city council elections. That may seem like a long time, but people start gearing up to run two years prior to an election at least. And we cannot wait until six months before the next election or a year. We have to continue to build power from now until then. So I thank you for interviewing me because I see this as part of that aspect of building power, keeping connected. And I look forward to our next conversation together. Yeah, well, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming here to meet with us again and letting us use this really beautiful space as well. We really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Denver Street Stories. We aim to help change a narrative surrounding homelessness by providing a platform to amplify necessary and diverse voices. We hope this sheds some light into a world often pushed aside and disregarded. We should hate less, love, and listen more.